is from Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Christ Jesus. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult any with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching that in faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. I think I can guess that most of us tend to uh, like personal interest stories, hearing about uh, people's life and how they've gone from one place to another, from the basement to the penthouse or from rags to riches. We tend to enjoy these stories. What changes them? What 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 are the ingredients in their life that kind of make them who they are? And, uh, of course, we like this, too, in Christianity. Testimonies of people, how they've come from dark to light, how they've changed from kind of not believing in God uh, to moving to a strong faith in God. Uh, we love hearing these stories. They're incredible, all the unique features of someone's life. Uh, and we have those. Augustine, the 4th century church father. You know, he was living a riotous life in North Africa. He, he was living a life filled with pleasure. And at one point, he just heard this child's voice. Didn't know where it was coming from. Just saying, take up and read. <clears throat> so he finds a Bible and he opens it to Romans 15. And, and he, he says, light flooded into my life. Um, and he was probably one of the greatest minds of Western culture setting the course of much of our thought, the way we live. Or Martin Luther. Martin Luther, you know, comes across Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. And this monk earning his way to God or attempting to, boom, his eyes are open and he changes the entire landscape, uh, the religious landscape of Europe in the 16th century. But you have all kinds of stories of of John Wesley and Charles Spurgeon, or John Newton. We sing, I once was blind, but now I see a slave trader becomes a, a preacher of the faith. So we, we love these testimonies. And, and one that predates all of these is Paul. The Apostle Paul has this radical conversion story. You just heard it. He was changed by the power of the gospel. The gospel alone changed him. One author said that outside the resurrection, 
His conversion had more impact on our world than any other event in history. Maybe debatable, but it is debatable, and that's the point. It has a huge impact on us. It was the power of the gospel. That's what Galatians is about. We've been looking at Galatians, this church that is beginning to fumble the gospel. Paul, remember now, keep the context in mind. Uh, Paul loves these people. He longs for them to want them to love and rest in the liberty that the gospel gives. False teachers probably from Jerusalem came along and they started going to these churches that Paul had planted and they said, well, the gospel is believe in Jesus as Messiah plus. They emphasized circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath regulations. It's Jesus plus. They called Paul. He was kind of a second-rate apostle preaching a second-rate gospel. Remember how last week they said Paul just received it from these apostles. He's twisted it to advance his own ends. He was trying to gather a following for his own profit. And so in one of Paul's most autobiographical letters, he says, the gospel's true. The gospel that I preached and saved you, it's true. And he gives two reasons in our passage for its truthfulness. He says, first, I didn't get it from men. I got it from God. I got it straight from the mouth of Jesus Christ. But not only that, look at my life. My life has been radically changed. What would account for such a change? So here's where it's come from. It's come from God. Here's what it does. It changes your life. The gospel does. That's his whole argument. He wants the church to grasp the fullness and the glory of the gospel because it's uniquely true as defined by where it comes from and what it does. So let's look where it comes from. Look with me at 11 and 12. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, remember back in verse 1, he was defending his apostleship. It wasn't from men, it was from God. Look at 12, it's a parallel. And now he's defending the gospel. It wasn't from men, it was from God. Again, he's fighting for these Galatian Christians to not fumble the gospel, to not depart from the gospel that saved them. Paul said it wasn't from men. In Greek, it literally reads, it's not according to man. In other words, man didn't discover it, he didn't interpret it, he didn't figure it out, he didn't kind of solve the riddle or put the pieces together of the puzzle. And This is what we now find the gospel to be. It wasn't from man. Paul wasn't taught it by any man. We kind of hear this kind of threefold negative, it's not, it's not, it's not. We kind of get a picture of what these opponents were saying. These opponents were saying Paul just got it in a derivative fashion. He took it from others and twisted it. Uh, Paul didn't really have, he, he didn't give us, you know, it's like hearing a story third hand. You're like, eh, I don't know that this is probably all accurate. But Paul says, no, I received it from revelation of Jesus Christ. What's that mean? Was Jesus revealing it, or was it something revealed about Jesus? Or maybe it was both. In verse 16, you see Paul say that God was pleased to reveal his son to me. God was pleased. You, you see this triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, opening Paul's eyes Paul knew about Christ, and he knew about the Christian faith, but he didn't know Christ 
And he wasn't a believer in the faith. But on that road, in Acts chapter 9, it all became really clear. Let me read it to you. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, Paul carrying letters from the chief priests. He's going to punish people of the way, or Christians. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, which is the name of Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now, F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, said, Paul didn't have a flash of insight here. He had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. So the gospel that he preached to those South Galatian churches, it wasn't kind of a derivative gospel. It was direct from the mouth of Jesus Christ. This Jesus who had been crucified was now raised and reigning and now Lord over life is giving Paul instructions about what to say. Now, we've got to do something with this, right? Because, I mean, you're saying right now, it's either true or it's not. If it's, if it's not true, then the gospel is just like any other human religion. All human religions are the same. They're all kind of based on the premise that we have to go to God we have to find the way, we have to do the deeds, we have to have the behavior, but, but it's upon us to go and search out and find God. Christianity is radically different, right? Christianity is all about God coming to find man and, and down to the incarnation, taking on flesh and blood. Now, this doesn't prove Christianity true, but it does prove it's different, and it's radically different in the sense that God initiates salvation, which we're going to see here. But if it is true, if this is true, we just have to ask the question, then it means that the gospel is a transcendent word from God. It's authoritative. I mean, if God exists and speaks this word to Paul, it's an authoritative word. It pushes out all other, all other words get pushed to the side. Rejecting this gospel is rejecting the God who gave it. I mean, if it's true, it calls us to repent and, and, and to seek forgiveness from God through his servant son, Jesus Christ. If it's true, it means we're forgiven. If it's true, it means you really have been, the guilt has been removed. If it's true, we really are children of God. If it's true, we really are reconciled. If it's true, we ought to pursue knowing everything that God teaches us in his word. You know, Christians today, we were caught up in this unique age of news being kind of driven by certain narratives and agendas. And there's all kinds of talking heads and voices that are speaking to us, telling us what's true, what's not true. There's all kinds of conspiracies afoot. It's amazing. I just read this incredible article about how Christians are uniquely prone to believe in conspiracies for various reasons. How much, how much time do you give to looking at the scriptures as God's truth to you as compared to all the other stuff that you read? I'm not saying don't read other things. I'm just saying it's a matter of proportion. And, and, and is it disproportionate? You know, if, if you're getting 12 or 15 hours of the talking heads, whatever, whosoever head it is, you get 15 hours, 20 hours a week of that, 
and, and you're glancing over this truth that has transcendent value for an hour, then we're not going to be surprised if all of a sudden we're kind of getting a little off tilt. So be mindful of that. I mean, when you, when you glance across 11 and 12, Paul's making an audacious claim. I saw the risen king, and he told me what to tell you. It's now in our laps to decide, what are we going to do with it? Do we believe it? I mean, does it mean that the gospel is truly the gospel? That's what his argument is. He says, I can tell you, I didn't get it from any man. I got it straight from God. Got it straight from God. But look at the second thing he argues about the nature of the gospel being uniquely true. And it's his own life. So what he's going to do is he's going to turn to the radical changes. He's going to use his own testimony to show the truthfulness of God. Look with me at 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. It's incredible. Paul knows the words out on the street. Now, Paul's speaking about common knowledge. He, he says, you've heard of my former life. We know about Paul's former life because he's not bashful about sharing it. He was a persecutor of the faith, and he was a promoter of the teachings of Judaism, the traditions of the father. I mean, to say he was a persecutor, though, I, I just want to kind of peel the onion on that a little bit. He's a persecutor. I mean, he was that. I mean, in Acts chapter 7, you can read it today, later, he is there at the stoning of Stephen, giving full-on approval, even guarding the cloaks of those who were throwing the stones. In Acts chapter 8, with these letters from the high priest, he's dragging men and women out of their homes and putting them in prison for believing. We just prayed for Afghanistan for the same situation. Paul was doing that. He was doing that. In Acts chapter 26, he'll admit uh, that he threw his lot in with the murder of these Christians. Paul was a bad egg. I mean, he was a bad character. You look at the Taliban, you look up. Paul was part of the killing of Christians. And not only that, but, but he, was, he was a promoter of this teaching of Judaism, the, the traditions, the oral law, the regulations. He was zealous for it. He says, I, I was outpacing my contemporaries. In other words, he was going up that clerical ladder. Uh, you know, look at how zealous Paul is. He was getting all kinds of attention, promotion. He was receiving honor for how zealous he was. So make no mistake about it, Paul wasn't confused theologically. He wasn't seeking for a better path. He didn't need some Freudian God in the sky to be his daddy. Paul knew what he knew. He was convinced. He was immovable. He was fixed. He was zealous. He was sure. He was determined, and he was effective. That's the picture he's painting of himself for us. He's reminding these Galatians. Now, let me just stop here before I go to the change that took place in Paul's life. There is kind of a warning for us here, I think. There's a warning in that you can really be religious. You can really be moral. You can really be spiritual. And you can really be zealous at it and be wrong. You can really be advancing beyond your contemporaries in your religious zeal. You're pursuing a morality or reforming your life 
and be wrong. You can also be successful. You can be religious and successful. Paul would have gone to all the Christian conferences out there, or at least Judaistic conferences. He would have gone to all of them. He was successful. He was advancing. He was going fast. He was respected. The chief priest gave him personally letters. Go get them. I mean, he he was a man in the middle of things. And he was wrong. I mean, here he is, zealous. Zealousness and sincerity have never changed something from being untrue to true. It, It may blind us and it may confuse us. It doesn't change the object of something being true or not. So there's a warning here, and I think this is what drives Paul to remind us in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? He's saying the test centers on not your morality, not how holy you are, not the things you're doing. Is Christ in you? That's the test. Now, I've asked people this, and I've pointed out in sermons, and this can rattle people's pans. It can all of a sudden make them feel, that's not my intent. My intent is simply a call for examination. Do you find Christ within you? Do you love him? Is, does repentance come out of you by the, by the prompting of the Spirit and not the confrontation of your spouse? Do you want to be like him? Do you treasure his work? Is Christ in you is a critical question that that he's saying we ought to ask ourselves so that we don't succumb to what he did too, which was religious fervor and religious success, but it was pointed in the wrong directions. Well, Paul did change, and we know the story, don't we? We're looking back. He, He changed radically, but here's the question. What changed him from being a persecutor of the faith to being a preacher of it? What changed him Uh, to being willing to kill for the faith, to be willing to die for the faith? What changed him from seeing the faith, faith as a threat to life to seeing the faith as a promise of life? I, I mean, you have to ask the questions. It's incredible, isn't it? It was only God. Uh, Paul gives us the answer here in 15 and 16. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So Paul tells us, what changed Paul? Well, God. God did. God set him apart from before birth. What does this mean? Well, it really shows us God's electing mercy, that before Paul was born, before he did anything good or bad, before he could do anything, before he could even think to do anything good or bad, God had set him apart like Jeremiah. It it shows us the sovereignty of God. God has to save. God has to be the one that initiates salvation. God has to be the one to move. And, and, and he calls Paul in space and time by the preaching of the gospel through Christ himself. In grace, there is nothing in Paul. God didn't see a spark of divinity or a potential in Paul. God saw in Paul sin and in the mercy of God set him apart and then called him by grace. But he just didn't call him to salvation. He called him to service. And that's what you see when he says, it pleased God. God unilaterally, God wasn't, his arm wasn't being twisted. It pleased God to reveal his son, Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, 
to reveal him to Je- to reveal him to Paul so that he would go preach him Jesus to the Gentiles so God opened Paul's eyes to see the risen Christ the one who was crucified the one who is dead but now alive forevermore God revealed to Paul, this is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This is the son of man from Daniel 7. This is the son of David who will have a kingdom forever. This is the Messiah. This is the consolation of Israel. All the promises of God, they're yes right on his shoulders. He is everything to the plan of redeeming the world. Now go tell that to the Gentiles. Paul's on like the hinge of history here. He's on the hinge of history. Now the gospel isn't isn't revealed through the ethnic distinctiveness of Israel. The gospel's going out, preaching him. There's no circumcision involved. There's no Sabbath keeping involved. You preach Christ and him crucified to the nations. We see this in, in Acts 26. Let me just read you. He's, Paul is before King Agrippa, and he is really preaching the gospel to this pagan king, and he's using his testimony to do it. And I'll return to that in the end. But he says, he says uh, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, so he's talking to King Agrippa, I saw on the way a light from heaven, uh, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen and the things to which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God, through Christ, appoints him to go do this. That's incredible. That's his mission. He was unique to the Gentiles. It's the changing of the age. Now it goes out. Now the promises, a light has dawned on the Gentiles. It's now taking place. And Paul's the main speaker for this initial charge into Gentile territory. That's what Paul's arguing. He says, this is the change, and the change has stayed with me. He was faithful to the end. But notice the the last part of the section that we read, uh, picking up in verse 16. He says, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. He's showing us now what happens after the conversion. He says, I didn't go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went away to Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I don't lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us, now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Now why is Paul sliding these travel details in? You know, he's just talked about his great conversion, and then he gives us his like itinerary. 
And I think the simple reason is this, that he's reminding these Galatian churches, I really didn't get this from anyone. I mean, when I saw the vision, I I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't do a consult with the apostles. Hey, am I getting this right He didn't consult with anyone. He didn't get further teachings. He went to Arabia and Damascus. And for three years, he studied and he prayed and he preached. All of his Old Testament learning being kind of recalibrated now to understand through this revelation. And when it says the word revelation, the Greek word means something unknown before is revealed. So he's trying to understand, but he he didn't get it from anyone. And what Paul's saying is, even, even when he went to Jerusalem, so after three years he goes to Jerusalem, he's only there 15 days. He's not a student. He's not a protege. He's not some, you know, he's not going to be kind of under the apostle's umbrella. He only sees Peter and he sees James. But notice he says, the churches in Judea, right around Jerusalem, they didn't even know me. They heard about me, for sure, because of the major change in my life. And then Paul adds that, like, I'm, I really am telling you the truth. It's like he's in a court of law saying, I, I swear I'm telling you the truth. So Paul's still trying to get these Galatians to say, the gospel I gave you and by which you're saved, it's the true gospel. Now, you know, so what we have is simply two reasons. Paul says, don't go the way of gospel plus, but go the way of gospel, period, uh, because he received it from God through a revelation of Christ, and you can look at my own life. And you know, Paul's life never did change. He, he never slipped back. He never went off rail. You have Hymenaeus and Alexander and First Timothy. They went off rail. You know, the, others have kind of fallen away. From, not Paul. Paul stayed true to the faith the whole way, even through great suffering. Most of us will never know, the vast majority of us, will never know his suffering, and he stayed true to the same gospel. Uh, let me just give you a little litany of what he went through. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches, of which he's expressing right now to these Galatians. Now, what would cause Paul to go through all that if his experience wasn't true? Nobody dies for a lie. Nobody dies for a lie. Now, I will admit that people will die for what they think is true that may be a lie. So there are people of all different faiths that have suffered and died for their faith, thinking it was true, but it necessarily wasn't. But, but unique to the apostles, they would know whether or not he had been raised. And nobody dies for what they know is not true. Ultimately, they'll save their own skin. You see this even in Watergate. You see this in trials. When, when one buckles, they all buckle. Nobody dies for what they know to be a lie. Paul's life is a testimony to the truth. Not just the change, but the perseverance of faith. So here we have 
gospel. We as a people need to fight for this gospel, this gospel of Jesus, period, not Jesus plus anything. Now, it begs us to kind of ask ourselves, have we experienced this? I mean, have you been converted like this? A few things about conversion I just want to touch on before I finish, and that is, you know, any true conversion to faith, moving from non-Christian, nobody's born a Christian, so we're all born outside of the faith. Everybody has to move. No one is born into the faith. I gave you that line from J.I. Packer a month ago. You know, God has no grandchildren, only children. So, first, conversions have to be a work of God. All conversions, all true gospel conversions are a work of God. Now, many of us, you know, we have a near-death experience or we get a bad note from the doctor or, or, or you know, we have this struggle in life and we, I got to make a change. I mean, I got to change the way I'm drinking, I got to change the way I'm eating, I got to change the way I'm living, I got to change the way I'm thinking, whatever. I, I, all of us tend to try to make these semi- personal self-reforms. Nobody can really change who they are. Nobody can self-convert. You know, the prophet Jeremiah says, can a leopard change his spots? God has to convert the soul. This is what Jesus means when he says, you must be born again and enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. God has to move in taking out our hearts that are hardened they're marked by idolatry, bitterness, rage, lust, anger, envy, competition. He has to take that heart of stone out, and he has to put in a heart that is marked by repentance and joy, forgiveness, worship, gratitude. Only God can do that. Now, th this doesn't mean when God does this work of conversion, it doesn't mean our lives go from full filth to no filth. Uh, then, then we start being sanctified by His Spirit. We're going to see that in chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians. The role of the Spirit in sanctifying us so that now our lives are producing peace and joy and patience and love. That fruit of the Spirit that we'll read about. But the work has to begin with God. You can't get there. You can't self-convert. Now, if you've been here for more than 10 years, you know that one of my favorite lines from Charles Spurgeon uh, was when he was walking down the road and uh, there's a, a clearly an inebriated man leaning against a f uh, kind of a lamp post. And, and he sees Spurgeon come by and he says to Spurgeon, uh, uh, Hello, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? And Spurgeon says, No, why should I remember you? He said, Well, I'm one of your converts. And he said, Well, you must be one of mine because you're clearly not one of the Lord's. And it's true. Conversion has to result in change. You see it in Paul's life. It may not be as strong as Paul's. It may not be as, as just severe in terms of its transition. But there has to be a change. So look over your lives. Have you seen the work of God over the years? Have you seen a greater desire for holiness? Incremental. Definitely sometimes two steps back. A wandering away and his discipline brings us on. But there has to be, if God has changed you, you will change. You will change. But it's a work of God. And Spurgeon, in his autobiography, writes, One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, the thought struck me, How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord, I answered. But how did you come to seek the Lord? 
Well, the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my life to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How, but how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Can you say that? Because if you can, then you're not going to be so anxious about the unbeliever. You're not going to be so anxious about, about your own faith. You're going to trust it all to him. It, it produces gratitude. It produces rest and liberty. It produces joy. So conversions are the work of God. But conversions, secondly, also share the, the patience of God. You know, Paul is the gold standard of conversions. And, and here at Paul, we see his life, years of murderous rage. It doesn't thwart God from saving him. God set him apart. It doesn't challenge God. Oh, that's going to be a tough one for the Lord. It doesn't threaten God at all. Uh, Paul saw his life being so radical that he actually writes to Timothy in the first pastoral epistle. He says, I'm an example. Look what he says in verse 16 of chapter 1. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So if there's any of you thinking, he couldn't save me. I, I've fallen back too many times. I, I've failed so repeatedly, and I've done it willingly, and I've done it. Paul's saying, you've got to look this way for just a moment. I am the foremost as an example for those who will believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus if you don't think you can be saved. Believe on him anyways. Turn to him. You know, when um, I came to faith after college, uh, I remember my parents being quite shocked and, uh, and the neighborhood as well, which would give you kind of an example as to what my life was like. And the people would come up to my parents. Yeah, he'd be the last guy I would think that would be saved to God. That he'd be the last one that would ever turn to God. Now, now, that shows you the darkness of my past, but it shows you the power of God. His patience with me in my arrogance and ignorance, all combined, wrapped up together, and, and just taking steroids. That's where I was. And God said, no, we're going in a different direction here. You were going there. We're now going here. He didn't ask my opinion. He just saved me, and he was kind to do it. But, but, but it's an example so that we would have hope. There is no one in your family or in your life that you can say they're too far away. I can't believe that God could save them. There are examples, if you look close enough, that God is more than able to do abundantly beyond all that you can even ask, think, or even imagine. So we see that conversions are a work of God. They display the grace of God. Conversions bring glory to God. We see this in verse 24. They didn't know Paul personally, he said, but they gave glory because of me. Somebody that was persecuting the faith is now promoting it. It's amazing. His eyes are opened. It, it, when you hear a person's conversion, do you give glory to God? Or, or we, we can be out, you know, awed by the details, but we said, God, you're unbelievable. 
to, to save people like you do. Now, listen, all conversions are different. Paul's is radical. Yours might not have been. My children were much more incremental. Uh, some people want to know this is the day I came to faith in Christ. It's crazy to worry about that. For some people, it may be obvious. For me, it was. For my children, it wasn't. It doesn't have, you don't need a date, remember? Conversion, remember how C.S. Lewis explains conversion? It's one of those deals. I, I didn't believe in the Son of God when I got on the ride at the park, but when I got off the ride at the park, I believed. It happened somewhere in between. I know it happened. I don't know when or how. But I, but I now know what I believe, and it was different when I got on the ride. So it can be the same way. So, you know, Jesus in Matthew 13 gives two parables to explain finding the kingdom. Uh, one parable is the man who just kind of stumbles across the treasure in the field and in his joy sells everything he has and buys the field. He's not looking for it. God's looking for him. And there's another man, though, the merchant, the very next parable, the merchant's seeking a fine pearl, and he finds it and sells everything he has with joy to get the pearl. Hey, some people are looking for God. They're, they're longing for something bigger, something transcendent. Others aren't. They're just kind of the, the young man wasting away his life. So, so convert, but they all bring glory to God. Carol and I have been blessed to have a number of times where we're sitting with people and we're explaining the gospel. And usually it's the third or fourth or fifth time that we've explained it or maybe 10th time. And all of a sudden the lights go on and they just say, how do I believe? And, and you just see it. You, you see it in their faces. The lights turn on and what they have heard and maybe understood cognitively, but they didn't believe it. They now believe it. It's a work of God. We're just like, God, thank you for saving them. Conversions and our own conversions ought to move us to glorify God. How often do you think back on what God has done? Now, some of you might be wondering right now, am I converted? It's a good question to ask. It's a good question. Speak with a friend or a spouse or one of us. We can walk through with you. Others of you are like, well, I didn't have any dramatic. Well, look back over the years of faithfulness then, and you're persevering in the faith, and rejoice over that. Uh, but, but don't leave today just assuming, yeah, I, I, I had what happened, what happened to Paul happened to me. And then the last thing I would say was that conversions always lead to a love for Jesus Christ and service for him. What I'm saying is this. Conversions aren't about getting people to theologically align with ourselves. That, that's not a conversion. Conversions aren't even getting people to convince, convince them that they are forgiven, although we strive to remind you that you walk in forgiveness. The ultimate goal of all conversions is that you love the one who saved you. You know, Paul said that all the things that he had were rubbish compared with knowing, that unsurpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Conversions always end up at Christ and his goodness, his beauty, his power, his mercy. There's this increasing awe of wanting to see the one who came in flesh, born, child, walked sinless, before the Father, so that he could gather people to himself and make them one with him. We're one. That's why Paul always says we're in him. We're not just a friend of him at a distance. We're in him. And when you love him, then you serve him. We always serve what we love. We always serve what we love. Our loves never lie. We know what we love, and we serve it. And when we love him, we serve him. 
so this is the beauty. So what does your testimony reveal about the nature of God? What does it reveal about his work in your life? Is it leading you to worship? Is it leading you to consideration? Is it leading you perhaps to think through? D don't, don't let these words be wasted. In other words, don't be one who hears and doesn't do. It's like the man who looks in the mirror, yeah, checks out, walks away and forgets what he, what he just saw. But let us be those who hear and do. The truth of the gospel is something that we will, it is the central engine of this faith and this church. The beauty of Jesus, period, not Jesus plus. Let me pray for us before we celebrate the table. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us in giving us one so perfectly like yourself and yet one like us in flesh and blood, yet without sin. Father, grant to us a great joy in your power to save, even today, even among us here. Father, open the eyes of the blind to the glory of Christ and him crucified, but now reigning and ruling over all life. And strengthen the weak eyes that, are, that have glimpsed it and are uncertain. Those who believe but who struggle with belief. God, strengthen them. Help the weak. Admonish the slothful and the idle, Lord. Discipline them gently. But bring us to a place where Christ will be for all of us, our all in all. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.